getting a little frustrated, and then a coworker or a spouse comes in and says, just reboot it. Just start it over again or hit Control-Alt-Delete. One of those techniques, and all of a sudden, it reboots, it downloads new software, and voila, it's like brand new. It's moving fast and smoothly. It's a beautiful thing. I had a reboot this week, which was quite fun. Uh, some of you know that right before I went back to Georgia, I was tapped rear-ended by a college student. It was her fault. And so my truck is in the shop, and I got a rental car. Now, last week, I went in to get the rental car, and all they had was a Ford Edge. Meh. But Friday morning, I hopped in the car, and I pressed the start button, and it went, and it started. I said, oh, no. This is my chance to get rid of this thing. So I went to Enterprise, and, you know, every Enterprise has a 22-year-old fresh out of college trying to do their best, and so... I wasn't that guy. I wasn't mad. I said, hey, something's wrong with the alternator of the battery. Can you swap me out? And he goes, yeah, Mr. Sherman, we can swap you out. We got two choices for you. You can have a Mustang or you can have a Toyota Prius. <laughs> I said, young man, is that an honest question? <laughs> he says, I think you'll take the Mustang. I go, yes, I will. It's a convertible. I, I go, oh, if it was only summer. Oh, man. And I hopped in that thing, and I closed the door, and I am 10 miles in the 1965 Le Mans, baby, racing the Ferrari team. And in the background, you can just hear Led Zeppelin's rock and roll going on. And Kim's going, don't you drive fast. Don't you drive fast. Don't you drive fast. I'm a new man. I got it for a few more days. You can take a look. It's, it's over in the parking lot. It's a beautiful car. But you know, the Christian life is kind of like that. You, things are going fine in many ways in our lives. Just things, all of a sudden, we realize weren't right. And all of a sudden, we receive Christ as our Savior and Lord, and in Him, we're a new creation. We've been rebooted. Today's text is all about that. So I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13. Jesus had just shown Judas that he knew that Judas was about to betray him. So he confronts Judas and tries one more time to melt his heart. Judas hardens his resolve, and he goes out, and that's the very beginning of this passage when you hear uh, John say, when he was gone, that's Judas. And so you can imagine Jesus says to himself, now what? Jesus knew the clock is ticking. The soldiers are going to be there soon. And so these are his final moments with his disciples. And when you're at your final moments... You don't talk about the Browns or the Buckeyes or the Guardians winning again, come from behind, walk off win, as awesome as that is. That's not important in your final moments. So we need to listen to these words 
with that intentionality. Because he says in this brief passage two things which are vital to us as his church. First, he talks about in verse 31 and 32, the glory of the cross. And 33 through 35, the marks of a real Christian. So let's look at this. First, the glory of the cross. Notice in verse 31 and 32, the word glorify or glorified is mentioned five times. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What is glory? Every year in the journey group, the very first verse that we memorize is John 1.14. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What is it? What is the glory? It feels abstract, doesn't it? It's kind of hard to get our minds around. The Greek word doxa, you know, we sing the doxology, right? Um, the word glory has two uses, all right? Glory means, number one, value and worth. Something is glorious because it has great value and worth to us. Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable about a man who discovers a treasure in a field. And he goes back home and sells everything he has. Imagine going back, selling your house, selling your Mustang, selling all your jewelry, selling everything because they pale in comparison to what's in that field. That's what Jesus is trying to get to. And he says in that text, it says, with joy, he assesses its glory. And with joy, sold everything he had in order to buy the field. Because the treasure in the field is worth infinitely more than all his possessions. In light of all the glory of the treasure, all his possessions are like, see ya. You know? They pale in comparison because they're of greater value. Another use of the word doxa, Greek, glory, is in brilliance and beauty. Paul tells the story in 2 Corinthians 3 about Moses coming down from the mountain. We mentioned this in passing last week. Moses comes down from the Mount Sinai. He has spent 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of the Lord. And his face is absolutely brilliant. Too brilliant. Too beautiful for even the people of Israel to look upon him. And so therefore, they can't. It's overwhelming. So with those two uses of the word glory, Jesus is saying, how is his glory going to be manifested? He says, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. So he's saying, right now, where I am going, right now, God's glory is going to be manifested through me. It's not, boys, you're going to really know what I'm resurrected and ascended. No, he says, right now. I'm going to be glorified. The greatest possible manifestation of the glory of God is right now going to happen upon my death upon the cross. So you can see why the disciples had no clue about what he was talking about. And you and I struggle with how in the world is the cross Jesus glorified? We struggle with this as well. To make sense of it. Well, think of it this way. Uh, 
you know, I'm an American, and I've never been super gaga over, I like English food, I love my English heritage, but this, this fanaticism over the royals I've never understood. But I like the queen, I really do, I liked her. And I think Netflix did a phenomenal job with The Crown capturing Queen Elizabeth's glory when she was coronated. If you've never seen that scene, it's quite amazing. Her father dies. Her and Prince Philip are in Africa. She comes back, and as soon as she walks into Buckingham Palace, her mother, her sister, and her grandmother bow to her. For the first time. They prepare for her coronation. And in 1953, she's coronated. And Claire Foy just did a wonderful job portraying the nervousness of a 21-year-old being crowned queen of England. She's beautiful. You can't even take her eyes off of her, as stunning as she is. In her regal robes. The music and she ascends the throne, and there's beauty, and there's power, and there's glory. And Jesus has the audacity to say the greatest manifestation of the glory of God is going to happen on the cross. You know, Jesus didn't die like Socrates, surrounded by his friends drinking hemlock. The cross was the most shameful, agonizing, humiliating form of death ever invented. Isaiah 53 says he would be so marred beyond recognition, and that's what happened. Queen Elizabeth's glory, 1953, you can't take your eyes off of her. Jesus, you can't even look upon it. As a matter of fact, if we did so, we'd get sick to the stomach. He was beaten beyond recognition. So glory, meaning Power, worth, and wealth? No, he was stripped. How more powerless can you be to be nailed to a cross? So what's Jesus saying that God is glorified in him upon the cross? D.A. Carson says it. The supreme moment of self-disclosure, the greatest display of God's glory was in the shame of the cross. So let's think about that. First, with the words of the good Bishop J.C. Ryle. Bishop Ryle explains it this way. He says, It showed the glory of his wisdom in providing a place whereby he could be just and justifier of the ungodly. It showed the glory of his holiness in requiring the law's demand for justice be satisfied by our great substitute. It showed the glory of his love, his compassion, patience, and his willingness to submit to such horrors unknown and unknown agonies as no mind can conceive when with a word he could have summoned his father's angels and been set free. So here's what he's saying. You could say to somebody, God is loved, that's just a preposition. But if you show God willing to go to the cross to die for our sins, that love shines more glorious, doesn't it? Or you could say God is holy and he's just and he can't just shrug off our sins. But when you see God so holy, God so just, and God so unwilling just to let sin go, that he was willing to go to the cross for each and every one of us and take the punishment upon himself, 
You see his holiness and his justice shine out in a way that's absolutely glorious, isn't it? See, if God had said, I'm just going to come back and punish everybody because they deserve it and just destroy the whole world, well, that might be a manifestation of his justice, but not his love. Or he could just come down from heaven and say, well, you know what? They've done a lot of bad things. Evil, murder, thievery, lying, cheating, stealing. It's okay. I'll just let it go. I'll shrug it off. I'll let things slide. Well, that might show his love, but that doesn't show his holiness. Jesus Christ, God on the cross, God incarnate, holy and loving, dying upon the cross shows all his attributes at once for all of us to see. His grace and his love and his holiness. So let's think about that. How could the cross be a manifestation of beauty? Right, that's the other one's the first sense. This is the second sense. How could it be a manifestation of beauty? What could be more beautiful than someone of infinite beauty voluntarily being beaten to a pulp? And losing all his beauty so that he could save us. What is more beautiful than someone willing to lose all their beauty for us? Isn't that real beauty? I mean, we all love those great battle stories where throughout history, a soldier, not necessarily wanting to answer the call, but does so knowing he's going to his certain death for the sake of someone else. And he's going into this conflict, and if I perish, I perish. We love those kind of stories. Standing your ground and saying, I'm here to defend my people. They have to go through me. And if I perish, I perish. And that's what Christ did for us. That's glory, the glory of courage, the glory of self-sacrifice. That's the cross. There's no other religion in the world that says their God has to have courage. We're the only religion that actually believes God became killable, became vulnerable, became mortal so that he could save us. He could put himself in a position where he could be defeated. And he was the one who said, if I perish, I perish. There's never been a greater manifestation of the glory of God than upon the cross. And it's a game changer. Do you see it? Going from the head to the heart. Sometimes it, it takes some time. Sometimes it takes years. But when you see it, it's a game changer. It's a truly amazing view. But that's not all that Jesus says here. That's the glory of the cross. Because the glory of the cross leads to the marks of a real Christian. Verse 33. It seems like he's quickly changing the subject, going from verse 32 to 33. Little children, 
Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? I think Jesus should have said, stop changing the subject, Peter. I'm talking about love. Peter just kind of skipped over that whole loving thing. So therefore, Peter, Christ Church, here's how you know you're a real Christian. Here's how you know you have salvation. Here's how you know you're a true disciple. A new commandment I give to you to love one another in the church. You know, we hear the, the commandment every Sunday in the summary of the law. You are to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. But Jesus says this is a new commandment. So number one, Jesus says, not love one another, just love one another as I have loved you. See, up until this time in history, nobody's ever seen love like this, the love that he was about to show them. He's saying, I want you to have your love for each other fueled by the glory of the cross. You're going to see the kind of love that no one's ever seen, the level of my sacrifice, my magnitude of love for you through that sacrifice. Now is your model. That's your power to love, the glory of the cross. See, to know what Jesus did to know the Son of God did all that for us that no one has ever done before. And Jesus today, in some ways, this is a new commandment because no one has ever had the model, the example, the motivation that you will have when you grasp the glory of the cross and what Christ has truly done for you. So at one level, he's saying it's a new command because you've got now the ability, because you've trusted in Christ to love one another that no one else has ever had. But secondly, he's saying the mark of the real Christian is that you do love one another. Verse 33, he says, I'm going to die. He's clearly talking about his death, and what most commentators are rightly inferred is this. Jesus is saying, while I'm here on earth, everybody could see my life. They could look at Jesus and say, wow, the Son of God is real. So what he's actually saying is the way people will know, the way the world will know that Jesus is really here, the way the world would know that Jesus is a supernatural reality is by the quality of our love for one another. If you grasp the glory of the cross, the mark of a Christian is you love one another, and only as you love one another will anyone ever see the glory of the cross or the glory of Jesus Christ. And in these COVID times, I have to say, if you're not physically here, you can't love this way. It's impossible. So let's apply this. Let's look first at ourselves. Jesus is essentially saying, if the world is turning away from Christianity, we first have to look at our lives. And we know less and less people are identifying as Christians now. So it's at least a reasonable question to ask ourselves, in particular, 
about the quality of our relationships with one another. 1970, uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote a wonderful little book on this point called The Marks of a Real Christian. I had to read it at Trinity. And basically what Francis Schaeffer says, you can learn all the evangelism and apologetics that you want, but if you don't love one another with the quality of love, it's to not. If it looks like our relationships inside the church are like the relationships outside the church, the, the world has every right to say there's nothing to it. If there's backbiting, gossiping, fighting, there's no different from the church than from the world. Schaefer actually says Jesus is trying to say if the world looks at us and doesn't see our love relationships as compelling, as to account for and as incredibly attractive, then in some ways they have every right to say Christianity is nothing. And Schaefer rightly ends the booklet by saying, isn't that frightening? Does that not bring about some emotion in us? You know, the world occasionally does see that love for one another, though. The love that Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston reached out to Dylan Roof, who slaughtered a whole group of people on a Wednesday night Bible study. He was up for appeal to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court denied it this week. But yet those people forgave him, reached out to him, visit him in the jail, have loved him. How can you do that? They're real. <laughs> if the world is tooking, looking away at Christianity, we need to look at ourselves first, particularly the quality of our relationships with one another. Because the love relationships inside our church is the ultimate apologetic, A1 priority. The second profound implication of this is it doesn't just say that the people out in the world will know we're Christians by our love. He says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And that includes who? Us. We will know that we're his disciples. How do you know you've really been changed by Jesus Christ? How do you know that your faith isn't just empty lip service? How do you know if something really supernatural has happened inside? When you realize the joy of speaking with a person who is completely different background than you about the things of God, they love Jesus, you love Jesus, and it's more of a bond than all the comforts of the world, then you know. Martin Lloyd-Jones modeled this well. The man was a medical doctor and at 40 years old went to seminary, became a pastor, one of the finest preachers in all the U.K., and he said on a sermon on Ephesians 1.15, which also is a reflection of loving one another in the church, like John 13, he says that he has his voice as he's reflecting upon this sermon saying, you know, Martin, look at you. You're pathetic. How can you call yourself a real Christian? What makes you think that you're a Christian? Look at you. And so he says, well, on the basis of Ephesians 1.15 and John 13, 
I would rather talk about Jesus Christ with the most humble, illiterate fisherwoman in our village with more joy than I ever talking about medicine in the wood-paneled enclave with other members of my social status in London. If I'm not a Christian, he says to the voice, why is it that I love all God's people? Not just some. I love them all. Not just the ones that are like me racially. Not just the ones who are like me educationally. Not the ones who earn my same income. I feel this bond to all of them. And finally, the voice shut up. (laughs) You see, before you're a Christian, your educational status, your financial status, your accomplishments, your politics, your hobbies were the ultimate for you. They were extremely important to your identity. And this text is saying there's a false pride there. It's a false pride that says, I'm in business. I'm in, I'm in a particular school. I have this particular education. I have the particular political party. I have this particular hobby. And we're proud of them. And they're very important to our self-image. But when you become a Christian, all those things pale in comparison. Some of those, they come in, they're, they're, not, they're just not that important anymore. That's because Jesus Christ, at an infinite cost to himself, has united you with God. That's what it means to be in Christ. In Christ. Paul uses that word, that phrase more than any other phrase. He's united you with God, and now you have unconditional love from him, not based on your grades, not based on your SATs, not based on your financial portfolio, not based on how successful you are. It's unconditional love. And when that happens to you, that becomes more important, and it demotes all those other things. And so even, yes, you have a nice portfolio, but you're a Christian first, and that's more important. Your identity, the, the way you know you've been changed is that when you meet somebody that's another Christian, their interests aren't yours. <laughs> their political party isn't yours. Their socioeconomic status isn't yours. They drive a 1984 Yugo In the past, that would have separated you. You despised them, but suddenly, because they love Jesus and you love Jesus, you listen to them in a way you never would have listened to them before. If the glory of the cross moves you to love all God's people, it changes everything. It changes your identity. It's a witness to the world and actually spills out in the way we love other people outside this, this room of other educational levels, of other means levels so how can we love each other how can we have this mark of a christian look at the glory of the cross until you see in jesus christ the way up is down the way to rule is to serve the way to become happy is not to pursue your own happiness but to work for the happiness of others The way for power and influence is not to seek power and influence, but to just simply serve other people. That's what Jesus Christ did. 
And his death led to a resurrection. He died to his happiness. He died to his power and influence. And he died in everything and brought in all the more. It brought more so we can go and do likewise. Rebooted in a spiritual Mustang, if you will. And that our love for one another is so amazing that the world would look inside our lives and say, there's something different here with these people. I want that. May it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come and help us to grasp the glory of the cross. That we more and more show the marks of Christians. And by that love for you and love for one another, the world would be drawn to your glory. Teach us, Father, inside of Christ Church to love one another across educational boundaries, socioeconomic boundaries, and to love people outside the church who are radically different than we are. Create, Lord, a supernatural love that actually cannot be accounted for unless people see that God is real inside of us in Jesus Christ. So we ask for this, for the world's sake, for your glory's sake, and for our sake through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.